Well, please grab a Bible and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll be looking at chapters 8 and 9 this morning as I've titled my message, Individual Rights and the Mature Christian. You know, it's been six weeks since we were last in 1 Corinthians. I hope you all had a very Merry Christmas, by the way. Hope you also had a a joyous and festive and expectant New Year celebration over this past weekend. I also hope that the Advent series uh, that we've been doing over the last five weeks was really uh, encouraging to you, beneficial to you. Most importantly, that it was it was worshipful for you. I know it was for me. And I do want to just thank all of those who participated in putting those services together, the musicians, the, uh, the audio team, the people who led prayers, scripture reading, and of course, uh, the brothers who, who preached to us such Christ-centered and edifying messages. Thank you all for your contribution. Thanks for loving the body that way. It's been six weeks, as I said, since we've been in 1 Corinthians, and I suppose after six weeks away, it might be necessary and helpful just to remind ourselves uh, where we left off, sort of get our brains back into the flow of Paul's stream of thought as he's writing this letter to the Corinthian church. Uh, I said we'll be in chapters 8 and 9 today. Let's, let's kind of catch up on the first seven chapters just to, just to get our, our head straight again here. Remember this, the Corinthian church is just a couple of years old at this point. Paul had planted the church. They were, they were very young, uh, but this young church was already beginning to have some serious spiritual health problems. There was divisiveness in the church. There was, uh, there was factions. There were factions that were, that were developing, and it was causing friction in the body, primarily because the people in the church had been so heavenly influenced by the surrounding partisanship in the broader culture, the, 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 the political nature of it, the rhetorical you know, one-upmanship that was going on, all of that divisiveness had, had just affected them so much that it was coming into the church and really destroying it. And so what Paul does in the first six chapters of the book, he begins the, the letter by, by simply reminding them of their true identity. He reminds them, look, you are God's people this, this divisiveness, this is what you were. This is not what you are. You are now God's people who've been made holy. You've been set apart. You've been redeemed. And, and that's all by the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's, it's because the Holy Spirit has been deposited in each and every one of you. And so he reminds them, don't, don't, rem- don't forget who you are. Don't forget what God has done. And don't forget what that set you free to be. Right? But then he begins to address what they have not been, and he spends uh, some time really just admonishing them for the lack of spiritual maturity that has led to all of these different problems. And then he deals with some specific uh, sort of uh, outward red flag sin situations that were threatening the health of the congregation, specifically some sexual immorality and also some lawsuits between brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Again, a big sign of that division, that divisiveness. So if we could sum up the first six chapters of the letter in just a a sentence or two, and really I think this would sum up the whole letter, but certainly this first six chapters, it would be something like this. Remember who you are in Christ. 
Remember who you are in Christ. You are one in him. And therefore, this disunity, this division, this this lack of love for God and for one another is antithetical to the work of the gospel in your lives. And a, a huge red flag that you're still living like the sinful world from which you have been redeemed. Again, by the blood of Christ. That really sums up the theme so far. And then we got to chapter 7 before we left off around Thanksgiving. And in chapter 7, Paul then begins to address some specific questions that the Corinthian church had asked him. The first question had to do with with some of their confusion and, and, and debate over marriage and divorce and remarriage and singleness. And so Paul addresses those questions. You can go back and and listen to that message if you want. But now we're in chapter 8, and he's addressing a second question. The second question that they've addressed to them specifically has to do with our individual liberties in Christ. And specifically, around the, the hot topic issue, at least for them, of eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. So let's listen to what Paul has to say, and then I'll I'll try to explain a little bit more in context what's going on. Let me read chapter 8. Paul says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, He does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And also by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. You'll notice that the scripture passage that Christine read to us earlier was very similar Paul addresses the Romans with very much the same argument. And you might be thinking, okay, 
but what has this got to do for, with us and with our lives today? This sounds like a completely foreign and ancient issue. Eating food, sacrifice to idols, what is this? And in that sense, I would say, you're right, it is a bit of a foreign issue, and it is an ancient issue. I'm sure none of us has stopped to consider if we might be sinning before we sat down to eat, you know, a lamb chop or the hamburger meat that we bought at Jewel or Aldi, right? But, get this, the underlying issue that Paul is addressing here is quite relevant today. And again, it has to do with how we exercise our rights, how we exercise our liberties in light of our consciences. And more importantly, how the choices that we make might affect others for who reasons maybe of, of spiritual conviction or maybe varying levels of spiritual maturity might have consciences that are offended by our actions, even if our consciences are not. And that is actually an issue, I would submit to all of us, that comes up on the daily in the church today. So let me give you a little historical context here to help us understand what was happening in Corinth, and I think that'll help us apply this more to ourselves. Eating meat, what was this all about? Well, first of all, eating meat was not a common experience for most people in the ancient city of Corinth. Meat was expensive. So right from the get-go, there was this major socioeconomic divide between those who might eat meat more regularly and the rest of society, the, the, the more well-to-do and the poorer folks in the society. So that, that is one thing to know. Secondly, you didn't just go over to the grocery store. You don't run to Jewel to buy meat. Meat was brought into the city because it was brought into these grand and elaborate temples in the city to be used as sacrificial offerings to the false gods of the pagan world. This meat would have been eaten in these these, uh, these cultic pagan feasts, which we've already talked about a little bit, these, these feasts that were full of, of debauchery and self-indulgence, including sexual sin. But worse yet is they were, just, they were ceremonies that were established to honor demonic pagan idols. In other words, these feasts were no place for a Christian to be. After these feasts the meat that was used, that was, that was left over, I should say, would be then taken outside and placed for sale to the general public in a, in a market that was attached to the temple. So if you did eat meat at the dinner table in your own home, it probably came from this market, and it would have been well known that it was leftover meat from a pagan ritual. So that's, that's what was going on. So here's the question then that's, that, that's inside the church. Here's what they were wrestling with. Is it okay to eat this meat if we know that it was originally used in a way that is dishonoring to God? It's a good question. And you had some people in the church who would say, look, it doesn't matter what the meat was, was used for in the past by pagans. 
What matters is the meat was made by God, the true God, right? And therefore, it can be enjoyed as God's good gift to humanity. They could eat the meat and say, our consciences are clear. And then there were others who would say, no, no, how can we eat food that's been sacrificed to idols? This is offensive. It's offensive because idolatry is offensive to God and our consciences are seared by this action. Not only for ourselves, but, but for anybody who would claim to be a Christian. How could you do this? So this is the question that was posed to Paul. How would he land on the issue? Well, again, this is a question of Christian liberty. And what Paul is going to do over the, the next couple chapters here is basically bring out three brief points. The first one is this. He's going to define what are our Christian liberties. What are they? Secondly, what rule should guide the use of those liberties? And then thirdly, what are our rights ultimately for? So that's our outline as we move forward here this morning. Let's begin with the first, the first point. What are our Christian liberties? Here's the answer right up front. We have more liberty in Christ than we probably have imagined. We have more liberty in Christ than we probably have imagined. And that liberty is rooted in the universal redemption that Jesus' death accomplished. Look how Paul answers the basic question about eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols in verse 4. And I'm going to read uh, verses 4 through 6. Again, he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. That there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many, again, quote, gods and many, quote, lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This is an interesting answer to the question because for those who think that Christianity is really more about all the stuff you can't do rather than what you can do, Paul's answer here may come as a bit of a surprise. Paul lands squarely on the side of the, the more liberated believers in Corinth on this issue. And he does so by affirming their theological understanding of pagan idols versus the God of the Bible. And he basically says it like this. Look, idols aren't real. Idols aren't real. Lots of people believe in them. They believe in false gods who don't exist. But because we believe in them, they can have tremendous power over us. But again, they don't really exist. There's one living God. And he says this is God the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, in whom and for whom and through whom all things exist, including us. So he's saying this meat doesn't belong to the false gods, to these false idols, again, who don't exist. Meat, just like anything else, 
is a good gift from the true God of the Bible, even if it's sometimes used by pagans, as all of God's gifts are sometimes used by pagans, non-believers, right, for impure reasons. All good gifts come from God. And since we belong to God, we can enjoy his good gifts in freedom. This is the argument Paul is making back to them. He's, he's siding with those who say it's okay. In chapter 10, verses 25 to 26, he says it like this, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's making a, a biblical theological argument to say it's okay to do this with a clean conscience. It all belongs to God. Why? Not just because he created it, but also because he's redeemed it. And the redeeming power of Jesus's death is total. It is universal. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul uses similar language here to make this, this argument about, about the redeeming or the power of the, of the redemption that Jesus has brought about. He says, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, which is exactly what he said here also in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Right? Then he says in this, this, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He has reconciled everything through the work on the cross. Earlier in the passage, Paul says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Again, that's Colossians 1. So a right understanding of the power of the gospel sees that all things are redeemed in Christ. This means for us who've been set free, we are free indeed. Not only free to enjoy the benefits of heaven, but also the benefits of earth. Christians, our freedoms in Christ, our liberties in him are incredibly broad. That's what Paul wants to communicate here. When we live in accordance with how we were created, and when we use created things in accordance with how they were meant to be used, there's nothing that we cannot enjoy as a good gift from the Creator. Look over at chapter 10 again. Just flip a page. Verse 31, Paul says there, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So on this question, what are our liberties in Christ, we might say, well, that, that settles it then, right? Score one for the people in the church who are spiritually mature enough 
to know that they have Christian liberty. I mean, to heck with all of those legalistic naysayers who would deny us our rights to enjoy the good gifts of God. Paul has clearly sided with us. Right? No, wrong. Wrong. No, not so fast, says Paul. He's, he affirms their theology is correct, but he says, look, in practice, you've actually missed the mark, and you've missed it badly. Good theology is only good when it leads us to the heart of God. And there's something of greater importance to the heart of God than the exercise of your Christian liberty. And that brings us to our second point. What rule should guide the use of our liberties? If we have incredible liberties, what rule, if any, should guide the use of those liberties? Here's the answer. The aim of our Christian liberties should be to build one another up in love. Either by enjoying our freedoms or by giving them away. Look back at the first verse of chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that, and this is in quotes, all of us possess knowledge. This, quote, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. This statement in quotes, all of us possess knowledge, is probably in quotes because it's probably a direct quote from the original question that the Corinthians had sent on to Paul. And this knowledge refers to what we've already discussed, this idea that meat sacrificed to an idols is in reality a redeemed gift from God that can be eaten by Christians with a clear conscience. That's the, that's the knowledge that's being referred to again here. And again, Paul is affirming this as theologically correct. But what he also says here is, is both simple and yet very profound and an important principle to take to heart. He says, knowledge puffs up. In other words, it can make us prideful. You can have all of the, the right doctrine. You can have all of the theological accuracy in the world and still be a sinful, arrogant jerk. That is, unless your right theology is guided by a motive of love. Pride seeks to tear others down. Love seeks to build others up. What is theology anyway? We're talking about right theology. Theology is the study of God, right? And the things of God. And what is God? God is love. God is love. So if, if our theology doesn't lead us to love, to love God, and to love others, we're not really doing theology. And love is humbling, which is the opposite of pride-producing. Again, verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. If you think you know something, that's pride 
You don't know anything, right? But, but if we love God, then the knowledge that we have is not just the knowledge that we possess up here, but we have the knowledge of God. God knows us, humbling, yet incredibly rewarding. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which we'll get to in a few weeks, Paul says this. He says, if I speak in the tongue of men or of angels, if I have all these gifts from God and I'm employing these gifts, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong. I'm a clanging cymbal. All the noise, all the speaking that I make, this eloquent, rich, theological, worshipful, whatever I might think it is, is just noise. And an unpleasant noise at that. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, no matter what I do in the name of or the service of God, if I don't have love, he says, I gain nothing. The heart of God leads us to love. So what does this have to do with how we exercise our individual rights and our liberties as Christians? I want you to get this because this is so important. This is, this is the tweetable part of the sermon here, all right? You, Christian, are absolutely free to exercise your liberty in Christ, okay? You are absolutely free to exercise your liberty in Christ. However, if our primary motive is love, then the best way to exercise your liberty at times may be to give up your freedoms for the sake of loving others. You are free to give up your freedoms. In other words, that's how free you are. And that might be the best way to demonstrate our motive of love, to give it up, our freedom, for the sake of someone else. Look at verse 7. Again, he says, however, not all possess this knowledge, this, this knowledge, this, this understanding, this theological understanding that, that God's made everything, it's all redeemed, and therefore we can eat it. Not everybody has this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. In other words, they don't yet see it as redeemed. They're still seeing it as something of their old way, their old way of living, the, of the flesh, of sin. And therefore, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now Paul says here again, food won't commend us to God. Food is not an issue. We're no worse off if we don't eat. We're no better off if we do. But Take care that this right of yours does not become a stumbling block to the weak, to the one who does not yet have that knowledge of their full freedom in Christ. If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he be, not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? In other words, you might not be sinning, and you know that you're not sinning, but if a weaker brother or sister sees you eating in that way and they think you're sinning, 
They might look to you as the more mature believer in the church and say, well, if they can sin, maybe I should sin. That's what he's saying here. And so by your knowledge, this weak person, verse 11, is destroyed. This brother for whom Christ died. See, Paul is deeply concerned about their their motive and the damage that can be done when their motive gets out of whack. He employs this weaker brother argument, and he does this elsewhere in the New Testament to acknowledge that not everybody has the same level of theological awareness. Not everybody has this, this, this same, you know, sort of understanding of their freedoms, and therefore, therefore, their consciences might be in a very different place than yours. So if my actions in freedom cause another Christian to stumble, and that, again, it, it might, that might mean that it, it might lead them to act into, into sin in their own lives by, by, by doing something that's against their own conscience, it might lead them to judge me sinfully, or it might put them in a position of temptation to do something that they have not yet realized their spiritual victory over, right? But if my actions in any, any of these ways cause somebody else to stumble, then I'm not loving them. In fact, I'm hurting them. You know, an example of this that we could you know, bring into a sort of modern application is something that we do regularly here. We take communion, right? And we know that in Scripture, Jesus took the cup, he took the wine, and he blessed it, right? And we don't drink wine in our communion services here, do we? We drink grape juice. Why? Well, there, there are lots of people who have questioned me about this. Why don't, we, why don't we drink wine? And they'll give several reasons. One, that's what Jesus was doing, right? So two, we have freedom in Christ. Alcohol is, is not a sin in and of itself. So therefore, you know, if we look at the example of Christ and we look at the freedom that we have in Christ, why can't we just follow that example and, and drink wine? Well, this this. Chapter 8 here gives us some caution and some reasons why maybe we ought not to drink wine and why, frankly, we don't do it. On the one hand, there, there may be alcoholics, recovering alcoholics in our congregation for whom any sip of alcohol is a setback for them, which would cause them to stumble. That, that of course, is a primary reason. But, but as it relates to chapter 8 here, there are others in the church who maybe don't fully recognize the freedom that we have to consume something like alcohol. The Bible condemns drunkenness, but it doesn't condemn alcohol. But there are people in the church who might think otherwise, who don't yet realize that freedom. And therefore, for them to see us drinking alcohol in church would deeply sear their consciences. Now, do we have the freedom to do it? We do. Shall we do it? Well, I would take the words of Paul here. If, if, if eating meat, if drinking wine, if any of these things causes my brother to stumble, then I'm not going to do it for fear that I would sin against them and therefore sin against Christ. You say, well, look, why, why should somebody else's weakness trump my freedoms? Why should somebody else, that's their, that's their lack of understanding. That's their lack of spiritual maturity. Why should that rule over my freedoms? My rights are God-given after all. And frankly, my exercise of those rights is more theologically accurate. 
Well, I would caution us on that. That's a, that's a very Western American democratic thing to say. Now, let me give you an example of, of, of why the heart of God might be very different on that. You know, we drive in a city full of pedestrians all the time, and I'm sure this has happened to you as it happens to me regularly. Somebody jaywalks in the middle of the street. You're driving down Clark, or maybe you're heading down Bryn Mawr or something, and and it's a busy area, and all of a sudden somebody darts out in front of you. They're not in a crosswalk, right? They're just darting out across the middle of the street. That's the definition of jaywalking. Now, if I were driving and somebody stepped out in front of me and, and I accidentally hit them, From a legal standpoint, I would not be at fault, right? I have the right of way in that instance. So if I were to accidentally hit that person, although I would be very concerned for their well-being on a a legal standing, I would would be okay because they were in the wrong. They they, violated my right of way. Now, get this though. Let's say I'm driving down Clark Street and I see a pedestrian stepping out into the street. He's clearly jaywalking. He's not in the crosswalk. I'm not in, a, in an inherent position of, of, of hitting him accidentally. Like It's not like an immediate danger. He's a little bit in front of me, but I think to myself, hey, I have rights here. I'm in the right. They're clearly in the wrong. And that leads me, therefore, to step on the accelerator and go ahead and just hit him. Why? Because I have the right to do it. Now, that sounds ridiculous, but that's the point, right? Here's the question I want to ask you. Do you think that standing before God, he would approve of your action in that instance? Could you therefore say to him, "I I was right. I was in the right. He would say, no, you were wrong. Because you deliberately hurt somebody in the exercise of your so-called liberty. That's the point Paul's trying to make here. When we hurt our brother or sister for the sake of exercising our rights, we're sinning against them, and not only them, but against Christ. Verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. How is it that we're sinning against Christ? Because they belong to Christ. Because Christ indwells them. Even if their understanding isn't yet as developed as yours, their salvation and their belonging to Christ have no, uh, there's no correlation there between that and their level of theological understanding or the level of Christian liberty that they know that they have. Our salvation is wholly dependent upon Jesus' choice and call of us. And remember, Paul is significantly aware of this because when Jesus met Paul for the first time on the road to Damascus, as Paul was purposefully trying to hurt Christians, Jesus doesn't just say, why are you sinning against them? Why are you pursuing them? He says, why are you doing this to me? Jesus is so identified with his people that to wound one of them is to wound him. To sin against them is to sin against him. And so Paul says again, therefore, verse 13, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. I won't do that. And neither should you. Paul then goes into chapter 9 
to demonstrate how he's leading by example in this. And we don't have time to cover all of chapter 9 here, but I do want to just give you the, the, the kind of 50,000 foot overview. What he's saying here in chapter 9 is, look, I'm an apostle and I have certain liberties. I have certain freedoms. Verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Right? I've got, I, I've, I've got a certain level of, of, of maturity, a certain level of standing here. Do I not have the right, verse 5, to take a believing wife as others have done, other apostles, as Peter has done? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Right? He's, he's, he's giving all these different sort of examples along the way. He says, I have certain rights as others have employed those rights as apostles. And then he begins to talk about the right to make a living off of the gospel. In other words, a right to receive from the church an offering, a collection to support him, to support his, his wage, to support his living. And he, and, he, and he uses the Old Testament as an example. And he says, look, God has, has provided rights for those who are ministers of his to earn their living from the gospel. And yet he says, I've not asked that of you. I have not asked an offering of you, even though he's done that from other churches. Why not? Why has Paul not asked this of them? Verse 18 is key. He says that in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of of my right in the gospel. Why? Well, remember the culture in Corinth was one of orators coming into the, the forum, the town square, and you know, spewing all of their wisdom and their knowledge and creating these factions and whatnot and doing that in order to gain a following, in order to earn money from the following. That was a big part of it. And so Paul comes into a situation like this and says, if that causes you to stumble, to see me, to be just like these shucksters out there, I'm not going to do that. I have a right to earn my living from the gospel. I have a right to ask you as a congregation to support my livelihood, but I've not done that. I will preach the gospel freely here because I don't want there to be a stumbling block between you and the gospel. I don't want to sin against you in that way. Church, this is a critical issue. And again, perhaps especially for us in the modern American church, we so often elevate our rights and elevate our, our individual freedoms to this place of untouchability, right? You, you can't infringe upon my liberties. I have this right. And, and therefore, we, we make our rights into sinful idols. How much damage is done when we prioritize our own rights and our own freedoms over the well-being of others? How much damage is currently happening in the American church, how much do we see of that that revolves around this issue, my rights over yours, your conscience, your well-being? And how much damage could be avoided? How much building up in love could occur 
if we simply recognize that true power is not found in the exercise of my rights and my liberties, but true power is demonstrated in weakness. Remember, that's been another key theme of this letter. True power is demonstrated in weakness, not dominance. I was recently watching, uh, re-watching the movie Schindler's List. And there's this really moving scene in the, in the movie where Oscar Schindler, who is this businessman who, who was helping to uh, sustain and ultimately to liberate the Jews in the, in the Nazi concentration camp. He's speaking with this power-hungry commandant of the concentration camp. Is this this, this, this commandant is clearly you know, building himself up. He's puffing himself up over you know, his ability to hurt and dominate other people. And, and Oscar Schindler says this to him. He says, look, you want to know what power is? Power is when we have every justification to kill and we don't. And he looks at the commandant and says, that's power, Amon. That is power. And it's moving because isn't that the very way of Jesus Christ? Isn't that the very way of Christ in the gospel? We just read here in chapter 8 that, that it is he who through who th- who whom are all things, right? And through whom we exist. He is power. Ultimate power. And yet, as Paul writes in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't didn't exercise that right, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This Jesus who had every right gave up his rights in love in order to build us up. True spiritual maturity understands the rights and freedoms afforded by being children of God, no doubt. You have incredible freedom. But that same spiritual maturity prioritizes the giving up of those freedoms at times for the sake of identifying with Christ in his weakness that others, again, may be built up in love. So what are our rights? Well, they're very broad. But what rule guides the use of our rights Love, not for ourselves, but for the sake of others. And then finally, Paul ends with this third point, and this is very short. What are our rights and privileges ultimately for? Here's the answer. Our rights give us the freedom to live for the sake of the gospel and for winning people to Jesus Christ. 
That's what these rights are for. That's why we have so much liberty. It's so that we can live for the sake of the gospel to win other people to Jesus. I think that's exactly what Paul finishes up by saying here at the end of chapter 9, verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. I am free, but I've given up my rights so that I might win more people to Christ. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. So in other words, I have freedoms that go beyond the Jewish law, right? But I will give up those rights to become like the Jew that I might win him to Jesus. Conversely, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So I will exercise my freedoms, like perhaps eating meat offered in sacrifice to a pagan idol, that I might be able to relate to and minister to those outside of the law to win them to Jesus. I will exercise my freedoms. I will exercise my freedom to give up my freedoms for the sake of love to draw others. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. What are our rights and privileges ultimately for? The freedom to live for the sake of the gospel, whether in using our rights or giving them up, that we might win others. Notice how he ends this whole discussion here in chapter 9. Do you not know, this is verse 24, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly, I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is interesting because this is, this is the summation of this argument, right? He's saying, look, look, we have this life to live. We have this race to run. Run to win it, right? Run to win it. And then he says this interesting thing, right? He talks about every athlete exercising self-control in all things. And uses that as, a, as an example for us to exercise self-control that we might win the imperishable wreath. Now, now, oftentimes this is preached sort of on its own. This is taught. You probably, you've heard this passage a million times. And I wonder what you think is being said when he's talking about self-control. Perhaps you're thinking about the, the exercise of certain sinful behaviors, right? I'm disciplining my body. I'm, 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 I'm controlling my urges to act sinfully. But in the context, notice what he's really talking about. What he's saying to have self-control over is not your, your what you can't do. It's to have self-control over the things that you can do. It's self-control over your freedoms and your rights and the exercise of those rights. 
so that, again, you might run the race well. Let us run the race well, brothers and sisters, both in our great freedoms in Christ and in the freedom to give up our liberties for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this really important and relevant passage for us. Father, we have to confess to you that we have elevated our rights and liberties to a place of idolatry. Lord, if I think of of a sin that, that the Western church, that the American church of which we are a part is perhaps most guilty of. This, this is right at the top of the list. So I, I, I thank you that you graciously reveal to us the folly of our ways when we have a, a messed up view of our liberties and rights. And I pray, Lord, that you'd forgive us. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us then to live the life that we've been called to live. Give us the freedom to not only enjoy all the good things that you've given with an understanding of of the power of the redemption of Christ, but also the freedom to give up our rights for the sake of others. Lord, we do pray that that everyone would, would grow in spiritual maturity, but Lord, part of the way that that happens, I'm sure, is by the more mature, loving well, the less mature, not offending them, but bringing them along, graciously ministering to them, allowing you the time, Lord, to develop them as we faithfully just disciple them in the grace of the gospel and not in a detached, uh, wrong view of, of, of just doctrine and theology. God, help our doctrine and theology to lead us to your heart. Let us be uh, astute theologians, Lord, that's demonstrated by our incredible love for you and other people. And we thank you for Jesus' love for us, that he's demonstrated this very thing for us, that by, by in so doing, he would save us, redeem us, and make us holy. Thank you again for your word, Lord. Bless your church. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.